A wedding is an exciting event, certainly for the wedding party, uh, for guests that are there who are good friends and excited for those that are getting married, a very special event. But for the enemy of the marriage, the ceremony itself is the moment where all the hopes that that marriage would never take place are finally dashed. When that ceremony takes place, it is done. Can't go back. In the book of Revelation, chapter 19, there is a wedding that's about to take place. And there is an enemy to this particular wedding. And the enemy is doing everything that he can do to make sure that it doesn't take place. But it's too late. It's a done deal. In fact, the celebration of the wedding has already begun. And so, the enemy, Satan himself, and his three allies have no more hope. It's just about over for them. If you have your Bibles, turn to Revelation chapter 19. Tomorrow morning, I'm going to be doing the next of this series, chapter 20. And uh, then we're going to bring it to an end the following week. And that's going to deal with the issue of heaven. What is heaven like? It's going to address questions, where is heaven? What is it like? What do we do when we're there? All kind of questions I often hear, not just from children, but from adults. What does the Bible have to say about heaven? And looking at the scriptures, we'll try to figure that out in the closing message that deals with heaven. The evil one, Satan, has three allies. We have discussed them in the past. Let me mention them to you. One is the beast, referring to the humanistic worldview, which attempts to give meaning to the world without reference to Christ. This beast expressing this worldview through the power structures that exist in society. Alongside the beast, we have a second ally called the false prophet. We define the false prophet as the false religious systems of this world that seek to satisfy man's religious yearnings to make him feel that he's okay with God because after all, he is pretty religious. But all along, used by the evil one to deceive, to keep people away from seeing true faith in Jesus Christ. And so we have the religious systems of the world that do not point to Christ. There is a third ally called the great harlot, Babylon the Great, another name referring to the anti-Christian world system found in the love of riches and pleasures. And you take these power structures and you combine them with the religious structures that are pointing away from Christ and then all of the pleasures and the wealth, the glitter, the fun of the world that can distract us from the things of God. And Satan's got three very, very powerful, powerful allies. And with these allies, it is his attempt to stop this wonderful marriage between Christ and his bride. But we're now at the very conclusion, and it's too late. Can't be stopped now. It's about to be finalized. Having opened your Bibles to the book of uh, 
Revelation chapter 19, if you have your scriptures, first we see the marriage celebration is beginning. Verses 1 through 10. And your outline is as follows. First, the celebration of God's victory. The celebration that we're now coming into, and we begin to wonder, what is the celebration? Why is there a celebration? And if you know what's coming next, this marriage feast, you would assume, well, the celebration is all about the marriage. Not quite yet. Notice what it says. After these things I heard, as it were, a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, literally, praise Jehovah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God because his judgments are true and righteous, for he has judged the great harlot who was corrupting the earth with her immorality. He has avenged the blood of his bondservant on her. And a second time they said, Hallelujah, and smoke rises up forever and ever. And the 24 elders, that refers to the church, all of God's people, and the four living creatures, the angelic beings, fall down and worship God who sits on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And a voice came from the throne saying, Give praise to our God, all you his bondservants, you who fear him, the small and the great. And I heard, as it were, this I being John, the apostle, who is taking and recording the vision as he is seeing it. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, and as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty peals of thunder saying, Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. The celebration really at this point has to do with the celebration of what's just taken place in the 18th chapter. If you were with us last week, that's where the harlot sees her demise. She is now put to death. Babylon has fallen. And so all the love affairs that can attract you and me away from the, the true and living Christ we begin to see it for what it really is. And so if you were with us last week, you see that even those who have loved the harlot begin to see her as she really is, and they're repulsed by her. And they say, I want nothing to do with you because you've distracted me from the true, the living God. That's who I really, really want. And then many turn to faith in Christ, and they put her down. She falls constantly through the ages from the first coming of Christ to the last coming, his second coming. But there is a final fall. And we read there that even those who have lived by her, the beast himself, the false prophet, all of those who have loved everything she has to offer, the wealth, the pleasure, the immorality, are going to, at that last day, see her for who she really is. At that point, they're going to be repulsed once again they're going to turn on her, and in her demise, they give their words of hatred to her. Literally, it says, they ate her alive. In other words, these are people who in that last hour, it's too late. And they're going to say, you took me from the true bride. You distracted me, and look what I lost because of what you've done. 
And so she is put to her death. Figuratively speaking, it's the end time. Now we have two more allies that have to be destroyed. And interestingly, as often happens in the book of Revelation, when you come to an end of one of the segments of Revelation, the story told from beginning to end, how many times? You tell me. Seven times. And at the end of each of the seven tellings, there is the last of the events of this world, and that is the final destruction. We call it Armageddon. It's called the judgment. It's the final day. And so in the storyline, as we are looking at this, it's interesting to see that in virtually every one, not all the time, but almost every time of these seven segments, there will be what I have called a parenthesis. You get in the very thrust of it all, and then there is a withdrawal as if to give you another picture in the midst of the big picture that you're getting, and it either takes you to heaven and it gives you a glimpse from God's perspective to see that everything is okay. That's how we started the series. God is in control. And I bring it back to you as I began the series saying, do you believe God's in control? Do you think it's all under his charge? That he has a perfect plan and that he's executing that plan? And so here's just another brief stepping back and we see the marriage supper, the festivities of the Lamb. And so now we see, number two, the cause for further celebration. It reads like this. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. And it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. And the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And he said to me, write, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are true words of God. And so there's another reason for celebrating. Not just what's happened to the harlot, but this marriage festivity as it begins. Now to understand this, let me give you a little background. You need to understand the Uh, ancient Jewish understanding of marriage. It had three parts to it. And that's why we wouldn't understand this just to talk about marriage. First, there is the betrothal. That's what begins. And you and I say, well, what is that? Let me explain. The betrothal is the time where vows are taken between the two parties in the midst of witnesses. Then when those vows have been taken... The father gives his blessing to the relationship. And at that moment, there is a legal marriage. This would be very similar to what we would think today of engagement. But with us, we don't get married at the engagement. It is a pre-marriage alignment. But in this case, what appears to be as an engagement before there's the great marriage ceremony of the supper and all that goes with it, at this particular point, interestingly enough, they're already married. Now, they don't live together yet, but they are officially husband and wife. The second stage of the relationship is the uh, interval between the betrothal and the wedding feast that's to take place. Now, during that time, several things take place. One, the groom 
will pay what's called a dowry. And if you're putting this together, thinking of the spiritual marriage, this takes place at the cross. Then the bride prepares herself. We call that sanctification. The church is being set apart through these years. The bride is preparing herself. And then later comes a procession of the bride with all of his companions. And he comes for her bride. And guess what he does when he gets her? He turns right around and he takes her to his home. And they live together throughout a lifetime. Do you catch the picture? By the way, when he takes her home, guess what they do? They have a great marriage feast. It's a celebration of the wonderful marriage that's taken place. And during that feast, there's going to be 7 to 14 days of celebration that takes place. And this would be comparable to what we're talking about being in heaven. That's 7 to 14 days. Let me simply point out a few of the parallels in case you didn't quite catch it. Here God chooses his bride from all eternity. The wedding is announced through the Old Testament. There is a covenant ceremony that takes place in the Old Testament. God comes down to the mountain in Exodus chapter 20 after Moses had been sent to the people having met with God and he tells Moses, go tell the people I want to marry them. I want to establish a covenant. That's the love relationship that brings about marriage. And here is the true engagement. And Moses goes down the mountain and he says to the people, people, guess what? Almighty God wants to marry you. And so the people respond. You know what they say? Hear the words. Whatever the Lord says, that we shall do. Because at this point, there was to be bargaining going on. The husband and the wife or their parents say, no, I'll tell you what, I'll give you this much, I'll tell you I'll do this and here, and, and you've worked out the arrangement of the marriage. And the people say, we are his creation, and he wants to marry us? Whatever he says the stipulations are, that's good enough for us. And you know what the people do? They go back up to the mountaintop, or Moses goes back to the mountaintop, and he says, God, the people say, whatever you say, that they will do. And so you know what God says? He says, go back and tell the people to prepare for in three days I come down from the mountain and we have a ceremony. And so with that, Moses goes back and he tells the people, get ready. I got to go back up there again, but I'm coming back. There's going to be a ceremony. He goes back up to the mountain. You can read it in Exodus. It's a tremendous story. He goes back to the mountain. Guess what he gets? the stipulations for the marriage. And he brings them back on two tablets and he stands before the people and he says, listen. And he reads the ten. Do you know what the people say? Whatever the Lord has said, we will do. That was their vow. I will. They're engaged, and three days later, they're married. And in Isaiah and other books of the Bible, from that moment on, God is called the husband of Israel. And when you come to the New Testament, Christ is called the groom of the bride, his church. It's a great story.
But we have the whole rest of the Old Testament. And through the whole New Testament period for a diary to be paid, there it is at the cross. It's paid in full. Now the bride has got to be adorned. She's got to be as beautiful as she can possibly be. And so that's why I've given my life to be a pastor of a church. That's why you're committed, so many of you, to work in the kingdom to bless the peoples of this world so that God's bride might be adorned. She might be as gorgeous as she can possibly be. It's why we want to see sin rooted out of our lives because he's going to come back for us. We are married, but we don't live with him yet. And so then the trumpet sounds, and guess what happens? Here he comes in the clouds with all of his companions, the angels, the host that surrounds him, and he comes in the last day, and we meet him in the air. And there is now a turnaround, and he takes us to be with him forever. And that's what we're going to call here the great supper, the marriage supper where we celebrate what God has done. That's the story of Revelation 19. Now, having understood that, look at 1.3, the caution while celebrating. And apparently John, in the midst of seeing and understanding this, falls before the angels and begins to worship. And they say, hold on. And I fell at his feet to worship, the one announcing all of this. And he said to me, don't do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And so he gets a mild rebuke here to say, uh-uh, give all glory to God. He's worthy of it all. So now we see the groom arriving for his bride. Attention now turns from the harlot that we've looked at in chapter 18, and we're going to see the beast and the false prophet as they see their final demise. This is immediately preceding what's called the judgment. First of all, we see his character as he comes. Verse 11, and I saw heaven open, behold, a white horse, and he who sat upon it called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. It's talking about Jesus there. And his eyes are a flame of fire. That is, he's about to judge righteously. And upon his head are many diadems worn by monarchs who have authority over many nations. And he has a name written upon his head which no one knows except himself. By the way, at glorification, you and I as believers are going to receive a revelation of what perfect fellowship with Christ is. We'll know his name fully. But until that moment, nobody knows his name fully. It comes at that last hour. Then we see his clothing, verse 13. He's clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And it's not real clear whose blood this is. Some seem to think it's the blood from the crucifixion pictured his own blood. Others, the blood of his enemies, taking off from Revelation 14, 20. Let me read that. It says, And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood came out from the winepress up to the horse's bridle for a distance of 200 miles. This is figurative. Keep that in mind. But maybe this is referring to here Christ on his horse, 
and the blood from that which is avenging their evil. And it's called the Word of God, very similar to John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Then we see his companions, verse 14, and the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses, probably referring to his angels, which, by the way, in Matthew 25, it says, when the Son of God comes with glory, he and all of his angels with him. And so this is probably picturing that very same thing. Then we come to the 15th verse, his commission. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, and this is not the sweet glory of the gospel. We talk about the gospel as a two-edged sword, the word of God. This isn't what he's referring to in that sense, but it's destructive power. So that it may smite the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. This is the destruction of his enemies. And then, verse 16, his claim. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. Isn't that great? King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We're abused as his church in this life. The evil one seeking whom he may devour. Trials and tribulations all around. But the day is coming. All gone. God's enemies are put to rest. And so now we come to the very end of the text. The enemies of the bride are silenced. First, the preparations for the slaughter. 17 and 18, and I saw an angel standing in the sun. He cried out with a loud voice, saying, all, saying to all the birds which fly in midheaven, come, assemble for the great supper of God. Now, don't be confused here. We've been talking about the marriage of the lamb. That's one thing. But here, we're talking about the supper of God. This is the judgment. It's figuratively speaking, but it's talking about when there is an eating, so to speak, of all peoples. The same terminology that was used in the demise and the death of the harlot is used here. It goes on to say, in order that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves, and small and great. In other words, those who do not take part in the feast of the Lord because you're his children, all others will partake in the feast of God and they, in essence, figuratively speaking, they become the food. It's all over. Isn't this delightful? Doesn't this thrill you? It's hard, isn't it? And I know exactly what some of you seekers are thinking right now. This is the God that you people love? This is who you want to follow? Absolutely. Faithful and true. Deserving everything he gets. And you and I deserving everything we get. You could never appreciate this unless you can understand the depth of meaning 
when it says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You and I go, ah, sin. Yeah, I shouldn't have done it. No big deal. In reality, we are enemies of Almighty God because of our sin. And as a result, as an enemy would be taken down, rightly so, God does so to those who are not his. But never hear the story of God's wrath without hearing the story of God's grace. And the story of grace is that he has given his own son that you and I can be at the marriage feast with the Lamb for all eternity. That's the great news. By simply relying on the work of Christ and Christ alone. Receiving what he has done on your behalf. Letting him work in and through your life to change you forever. That's the gospel. That's good news. Made available to all people. And so we come now to the assembling of the enemies. This is what would be called the little season. If you've been with us, you know that you have a thousand-year millennium, as it's called, figuratively speaking, a period between the first coming and the, and the second coming of Christ. But there's a little season where Satan during all this time has been bound. He has been bound in the abyss, shut up in the abyss, that is bound from one activity, and that's from deceiving all the nations. And he's going to be released for a brief period before the final judgment. It will appear as if the church's life is being put out. In other words, he is about, the church is about to die. And this is being recorded here in this very brief passage in verse 19. This is that little season being referred to. And I saw the beast... And the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat upon the horse and against his army. And that leads us to the last sub-point here. This is Armageddon. We discussed it in full before. The slaying of the beast and the false prophet. Verses 20 and 21. The beast was seized and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image, these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword which came out of the mouth of him who sat upon the horse and all the birds were filled with their flesh. This would be Armageddon, not described in great detail as earlier, but this would be Armageddon. At the second coming, Satan's persecutions, all of his deceit ends forever and ever. That's the end. Maybe you heard the story of the nice young man who came into a bar and here was a gang of motorcycle drivers a big motorcycle gang and hoodlums and he walks in and he sees the way they're acting the way they're talking and he silences the group and he says you you guys you, you need to straighten up this is not right you're talking wrongly you're doing bad things and you need to stop and they all turned on him and they said and who do you think you are and they began to beat him up and maul him and he can barely get out and he leaves limping as he leaves. One of the guys turns to the others and he says, you know, somebody needs to teach that boy how to take care of himself. 
Well, the waitresses is looking out the window, and about that time, this young man gets in his big semi-truck that he'd come in on, and he drove over every motorcycle that was out there. I mean, back and forth, he smushed them all, and he took off. And having seen that, she says to them, you know what else? Somebody needs to teach that boy how to drive a truck, too. In other words, he got the last word, didn't he? And our Savior came to this earth, and he got beat up pretty badly. But let me tell you, he has the last word. It's his word. He reigns forever. And so as we conclude, to be a believer means to be married to Almighty God, to the great lover of souls. It's to be married to the one that provides our every need, It's to be married to a faithful one even when we remain faithless. It's to be married to one who is going to provide for us, who is going to bring security to us, who's going to give us everything we need. Christian, do you know that? Do you know how much you matter to God? You are his bride and he loves you to death. So when you keep beating yourself up saying, who am I? And look at me and I'm so bad. Don't forget the righteousness of Christ that covers you. And instead of saying, I'm so bad and look at me, say, I am so loved by Almighty God. And the goodness of God leads us to repentance and bow before him and say, I'm sorry. Understand the work of God's spirit. Confess your sin and live to his honor and his glory. But never forget it is a love relationship. You're not just his servant. You are his bride. And he loves you with everything he has. He gives you everything that's his. And he says, I will do any and everything for you. Haven't I already died for you? That's how much he loves you, Christian. Live for him. Out of a love relationship, live for him. Seeker, the good news, there's an offer that you can be married to him. Just come to the altar. Bow the knee. Confess in your heart that he's who he claimed to be. Give your intention to follow him, relying on the work of the cross to forgive you. Watch how he changes you from the inside out. Come to the cross. It's the only place to be. And then let me, let me encourage every one of us who have maybe been enticed by the beast, maybe been enamored by the false prophet, hoping in your religion, hoping in your acceptance by the world and its power structures, they're going to die even as the harlot died. You're going to be left with nothing. Come to Christ. He'll give you everything you need. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, you are certainly a great and mighty God. And to think that we are your servant, but at the same time, we're your child. And at the same time, we're your bride. Thank you for so many different analogies to express to us what a deep, deep love you have for your people. 
I thank you, Father, that you do show forth your righteous wrath as an expression of your love for your people, as an expression of the purity of your character. I thank you, Father, that you avenge for the sake of clearing your name before all of creation. You are the faithful one. You are the true one. And so, Father, we call you King of Kings. We call you Lord of Lords. And we just bow before you. Honor you as the King. Thank you for being our God. Too good to be true, but we thank you. And we pray this, even in the matchless name of Christ our Savior. Amen.